You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Hello and welcome. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host of The Perth Property Show, where WA's best industry minds discuss a variety of property-related issues and point a spotlight on your local suburbs each and every week. Negative gearing. Do we need it? Is it important? What happens if it goes? Those are the questions that have been asked to us quite regularly recently, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Of course, we've got Carlo Bordy in again. Carlo, thanks for coming in. Please help us out. Negative gearing, let's talk about it. Trent, thanks for having us. Yeah, look, negative gearing, let's, let's just explain what that means. In simplistic terms, it simply means the rent you're collecting is less than the items you can claim as a tax deduction. Uh, that loss then is determined and defined as negative gearing. It's yep. so simple. Really. So for one financial year, you've maybe gotten $20,000 in rent, but it's cost you with interest and maintenance and depreciation $30,000 to hold it that year. Therefore, you have a negative gearing of $10,000 and you can claim your effective tax rate on that $10,000. Yeah, basically that, that's, that's a correct summary. Yep. doesn't mean you're getting $10,000 back. No, no, look, uh, and that can range from getting back nothing to getting back uh, $4,700. So yeah. it's all dependent on whatever tax bracket you're in. If you've earned no other income and if you learn it's $20,000, your zero tax bracket. You have nothing to claim against. You, you, you can't get anything back because you haven't paid any tax. Mm. If you're in the highest tax bracket of earning 180000 plus, you're in the 47 tax bracket, you get back... Four thousand seven hundred from that ten thousand dollar example. That's as big as it's going to be. That's as good as it gets. Yeah. So yep. you've you've lost five thousand three hundred dollars out of your pocket. And I think that's a really good point to start with. Is so many people say, "Oh, I want to pick up a negative geared property." Why? For, I ask that question. I say, when you're getting money back from the government, it's because you've actually lost money. I say to them, I'd rather be paying half a million dollars a year in tax because that means I made over a million dollars in income. Look, ultimately. If you see me having negative gearing and that's all you've got, you're going backwards. Yeah. yeah. And you need to make sure that if you've got a property that's negatively geared, it is being offset by some really good capital gains. Otherwise, you're losing on both fronts. At the end of the day, if you don't pay tax on it at the end, you've actually thrown your money away. So you really hope that the capital gain you're going to make is going to be far greater than the expenses it's cost you, mm. which is this, this example of, of $5,300 yeah. per year. Yep. So if you're not recouping that, you've actually have gone backwards. Yeah. So at the end of the day, what you really want is a property that's not only growing in value, but it's also bringing in cash on a cash flow level every year. Ultimately, if you had a property which was what I call equally geared, in other words, it's costing you nothing to hold, yep. and you hold that property for, for 10 years, and then that property increases in value, that's the ultimate scenario. Mm. It's cost you nothing to hold. You yep. make a bundle at the end. Yep. You pay your tax at the end. And listen, I'd love to have 10 of those properties Yeah, because it means I made a fortune. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. So that's how we understand the value of it, I guess. But let's talk about how important it actually is. How are people actually using that negative gearing and are they going to keep needing it given there's a you know a little bit of a question as to whether it's going to be around much longer? The whole idea of, of the negative gearing is that ultimately it hopefully helps you with your cash flow because you claim it as a tax deduction, you get back on your tax yep. and there's another way you can do it. You can actually go to your tax agent and say, listen, uh, put a variation in for me. And what that means is uh, a document goes into the tax department. It then authorizes your employer to deduct less tax out of your wage. So ultimately, when you lodge your tax return, if you put the variation in, you won't get such a big refund 
But every pay, you've paid less tax, gives you more disposable income every day, every week, every month when you get paid to pay against your loans. Is that against last year's tax return? It, it, it relates to your current week earnings. So if I've done this variation, if my wages are supposed to take home $1,000 and mm. it varies it by 100 bucks every pay, I now take home 1100 for that pay. But you're not going to get that holiday fund from tax return in August. It then means that instead of getting 52 lots of, of $100, yeah. you're not going to get that big bump refund at the end of the year. No. You've got it along the way, so it's either one way or the other. You either get a lump sum at the end yeah. or you get in drips and drabs every pay. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, and if you do it that way, if you overdo it, you may even have to pay a little bit. Oh, look, yeah. I mean, you've got to be very realistic in what you do and conservative. Otherwise, you don't want to be in a situation where you're owing back at the end because that's going to make it more difficult. We understand how it helps. Let's talk about what happens if it goes. But it's already starting to go, isn't it? Well, look, it has. And look, one of the other things which has been addressed right now is what's called depreciation and special building write-off. And look, we didn't really talk about that previously, but that's an actual advantage when you've got that because when you are claiming a deduction for your expenses you can claim these items and they're non-cash items so in other words you buy a building attached to it yeah it cost a hundred thousand dollars to build so the commissioner then says you can claim two and a half thousand dollars every year as a tax deduction when you bought that property and plus there's depreciation on carpets curtains light fittings and all that sort of stuff now you're not physically paying for those every year but you're getting a deduction for it which works out really well but what the government is doing, he's now attacking negative gearing by chipping away at it. And what he's done, and this has mm. been evident in the last 12 months, travel expenses are no longer deductible. Yeah, so you can't claim cents per kilometre to go up to your holiday home to check it out 10 times a year? Look, more importantly, I've got a gentleman who had a property trashed in Queensland. He had to stay there for 35 days to organise subcontractors to get it all fixed properly. Mm. And his stay and his meals and accommodation was not deductible because of this new legislation. So... Yep. Yeah, it, it has some, some significant factors to look at because it can hurt you, especially for the legitimate ones. <laughs> what about claiming depreciation on second-hand goods? Look, and that's that's a new legislation. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because with the new legislation, if a, if a property is currently purchased, then if it's second-hand goods, what that means by that is if it's a residential property which someone else has lived in, either as an investment and or their own house, you're not entitled to claim the depreciation anymore. So from as of last year, if you're not buying a brand new house, you can't claim depreciation on that property you've purchased. Look, I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was May uh, 2017 that you can no longer claim the uh, the depreciation on a second-hand residential. But it also extends to, if you go to a garage sale and you find a nice hot water system or a fan or whatever and you buy mm. it, that's second-hand good. You can't claim it either. You're trying to save money on your build yeah, and you don't have the receipts for a brand new hot water system, can't claim that. Well, even if you have a receipt, if you, if, I mean, a person can write a handwritten receipt and tax-wise that's acceptable as long as they have the date and the name and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But it's a second-hand good, you file it. Even if you go and buy it from a, a, a cash converters, mm. let's say, who, who would give you a full documented receipt, it's not deductible now. It, it does seem that we're going in that direction that Bill Shorten's trying to take us and that is getting rid of negative gearing altogether. Well, again, negative gearing are the expenses you came as a deduction. And look, we, we talked about the travel. We now talked about depreciation as items. But it's also tackling other areas. Like if people have uh, their own, um, they have a, a relative, for example, that rents their, their, their house. And if that relative is defined as non-arms length, so in other words, somehow they, they're in a family group, if you're not charging market rates, previously in gone past treatment used to be, oh, okay, look, you're only charging two-thirds of the rent that you're supposed to be doing because they're looking after the property. We only claim two-thirds of our deductions of expenses on, on everything, mm. uh, interest, rates, and tax. Now what the commissioner is saying is, if you're not charging market rates, the consequence can be as harsh as 
you've only collected 15000 in, in income, you've got 30000 worth of expenses, you can only claim $15,000 of that. You don't mm. get it all. You only get a break-even scenario. So it really is starting to make it harder to maintain or to hold holiday homes that may not be utilized 100% of the time. Well, that's not actually a holiday home. That could be just an investment property you've got that you've decided to rent out to your son because you want to kick him out of your house mm. and he wants an independent home. And you go, I'll look after your son. I'll put you in a house. Holiday homes are slightly different. I mean, a lot of people have got holiday rentals where there's like this short stay and, and that's a completely different ball game. And the commission is even more critical on those. Um, where If you don't demonstrate that you are renting out the property and making every effort to promote it through agents, through advertising, and if you don't promote it at market rates, in other words, if you have an inflated price so no one use it so you can then use it, then you're potentially denied all the deductions on that property. It's, it's very horrific and very, very uh, onerous on the, on the taxpayer to, to prove that they are really making every effort to rent that property out does seem like it's a theme. Uh, look, like I said, they're chipping it away at, it, at all different sides and they haven't eliminated it, but they are certainly putting a dent on it. What happens if the Labor Party gets their way or Bill Shorten gets his way and negative gearing goes? It's not grand. It's obviously, it's not going to be affecting the houses that people already own. But from now on, what would what be the market effect there if negative gearing, uh, you know, an incentive or a, a, an assistance in owning an investment property goes away, what's going to happen? And look, it's not easy to answer that question, but if you use pure logic, one would expect that if legislation was to change, if you were in the old legislation, you'd probably retain that. In relation to moving forward, anyone buying a property in, in uh, subsequent years to any legislation change would probably be faced with a position where it's less attractive to buy rental property. Mm. Now, if you look at supply and demand, if you've got X amount of houses for rent out there and our population grows and more people are going to want to rent properties, in the short term, you'd expect rental returns to increase because there's less people incentivized to create supply and demand is going to be what it's going to be demand doesn't care about negative gearing if the population starts going up when we're hiring more people for the mine next mining boom for example that's going to keep pushing that demand that thirst for new properties to rent is going to keep coming and if there aren't enough people that are incentivized to supply those properties then yeah that balance starts to become imbalanced and there's more demand than supply and therefore of course the rent's going to go up and unfortunately most people don't hear about this until after the fact and it's a reactive jerk to say mm. oh um uh, rental properties uh, price have gone up but you probably heard it six or twelve months after the fact yeah so by the time these people buy a property and settle on a the property they make it available for rent that's also going to take extra time and effort yeah. and one would hope then if you use pure logic again, that if demand increases to buy rental properties, maybe property prices will then start to increase. Because so it's a bit people of a, would prefer to just take a mortgage out and own their own home. Well, yeah, certainly. But it's, it's a bit of a cycle. You know, the more properties out there, the lower the rent. The less property out there, the higher the rent, but then potentially the value of the properties have, have less because mm. people aren't buying property. So yeah. it, it, it goes hand in hand. I see it being something where it creates a situation or furthers the situation of the haves and the have-nots. The people that have already got a, a, an investment portfolio that can still claim negative gearing benefits versus those people thinking about creating or increasing their portfolio who are less incentivized to do so or just now therefore can't afford to do so. And you've got 10, 15 years down the track, those people who have still been incentivized to continue to hold their properties and then the new generation of people who just can't afford or just aren't incentivized enough to build their portfolio the way that someone five years earlier has been. Definitely. But also, in the current market that we're dealing with here in WA, and I'm only talking about the WA market, yeah. even just recently, it was publicized that for the September quarter 2018, property prices have actually decreased by 2%. Mm. What does that tell me? That at this point in time, 
there's not enough stimulation here. We are poised for growth, but until we get a few factors happening, and that key factor is employment increases and population growth. Yep. We need, and, and finance availability. Well, I think I think finance will have to sort itself out because the banks are going through a really bad time right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's bad timing for WA that oh. not only are we trying to push up that hill again, we've got someone putting their foot on, on the hose stopping us making those uh, endeavors oh look it's definitely more difficult but if you keep in a simplistic scenario where you're simply looking at acquiring an investment property mm. i think the banks have got a far easier task to make that happen for you than if you're doing something more elaborate yeah there are a lot of forces out there which are beyond everyone's control but if the right box get ticked well then potentially wa is poised maybe for a for a, a correction because we haven't gone the right way for a long time now with growth yep uh, and but, I guess that it will be irrespective of negative gearing, whether it's here or not. Uh, look, I think it's like anything else. You know, when you rip the bandit off, it hurts for a few minutes, and then after after a while, you forget about it and you move on. So small term shock, long term uh, may even help in terms of getting that cash flow up on positive positive yeah. cash cash flows, and we don't even have to worry about negative gearing anymore. Well, it'll become what you come accustomed to, really. Yeah, yeah. Carlo, thanks a lot for your time. We'll have you in soon. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move over to the suburb spotlight now. And this week, we're talking Warwick. This is one of my favorite suburbs in the city of Joondalup. It's right on that southern border, right next to some of the more expensive suburbs like Duncraig, but offering right now some really good value for me, especially on the development side. And to chat about that, someone that I think is the perfect person to help us out with the background. He lives in Warwick. He's Mr. Warwick. It's John Tompkinson from the agency. John, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Trent. Thanks for having me. John, Let's start with a bit of background on Warwick. Uh, for those people who haven't lived, you know, north of the river before, or just just come into the to the state in the last few years, what sort of demographic is Warwick? Warwick is a suburb in the northern suburbs, 13 kilometres or so away from the uh, the city, up the Mitchell Freeway. Uh, it's a family area predominantly, with a shopping centre at the hub of it and a train station within a short stroll. You've got a couple of those really important opportunities there. You've got the train station and you've got Korean Open Space being pretty close to and the shops, right? So that really that trifecta of opportunity there in terms of public amenity and walk score, Warwick's right in the middle of that. Correct. On the eastern flank of the suburb, you've got the Warwick Open Space. Yep. Um, and on the western side, you've got Korean open space and all throughout the suburb is beautiful parklands. Great for families and uh, six kilometers from the beach straight down Beach Road. Yeah, great. Well, Beach Road, there you go. You know you're on the, on the right track if you're on Beach Road. Exactly. An 80s setup, really? Yeah, it is. A couple of different stages of the development began in the 70s and then into the early and mid 80s with the second part of the development being closer to the train station, a leafy green part of Warwick called Hawker Park. Yep. And some really lovely big family homes in that area. So we're talking at a minimum double brick homes now. You don't really see a lot of fibro around. Uh, correct. Yeah, very, very minimal amount of fibro construction in the area. Yep, so um, strong homes. Most of them four by ones, uh, four yeah. by twos. Yeah, you've got your three and four by ones and then your bigger four and five by twos. Yep. Uh, there's a fairly good percentage of double story properties so in that th new there's area. There's a bit of top end in Warwick. As much as it's sort of probably a middle class suburb, because it's so close to your Duncraigs and getting close to the beach, there is actually some quite expensive homes that have sold in the last few years. Yeah, correct. In that Hawker Park area in particular, some sales have been into the mid-800s and there's a fair few uh, in the low to mid-700s at the moment. Yep. As an average though, we're probably talking, what's the median price right now? The median price right now going through uh, real figures is uh, $540,000 for that, Warwick. That's right in the middle really of Perth, isn't it? It's a really good snapshot of a, a normal Perth family. 
Correct. Yeah, I'd say maybe about five to seven percent over the median house price of Perth generally. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that really leads into some good opportunity, especially where we're talking. What was the 2016 rezoning from the city of Tunnelup? It's been quite a uh, market change in the suburb where they've brought that rezoning in um, because of the amenity and because of the train station. Yep. And easy access to uh, arterial routes and transport. Warwick's on the very southern border of the Tunnelup Shire. They've got some. R20 properties to R40 now, as well as R20 to R60 around those two hubs of the train station and the shopping centre. So in practical terms, tell us what that actually means for a small developer coming in. What could they have done before, if anything, and what are they looking at being able to do now? Uh, Before uh, April of 16, nothing much could be done uh, effectively. Uh, If you're in an R20 zone, if you haven't got 900 square metres, you can't be duplexable. But now with the changes, R40, um, you're looking at um, some block sizes in the mid 700s and uh, you can build a nice triplex development on those and in the r60 you can build multi-dwellings and also apartments are an available option as well what i'm noticing is warwick being obviously that sort of 80s more upper spec sort of style estates the houses were pretty big so whilst you could do some house behind house are you finding there's probably more opportunity to knock it down and and build some nice triplexes or are there still some opportunities for big enough backyards to put 300 square meters somewhere the battle axe block is an option for those maybe looking to do things quickly and move to the next project but if you are looking to make the most out of it i expect that uh, finding the right site and demolishing might be your best option because there's no real supply of these sort of triplex units in warwick and which has the up end possibility there's some real money to be made that i'm seeing especially on the buying side in being able to bring out those new products of some 200 and something square meter three by twos there's just nothing out there and and given that there's a lot of young people moving out of their parents' home that are happy to stay in Warwick and spend about the same money on a new smaller house than what their parents had. There's a bit of profitability in there if you can find the right block that doesn't have too much site works given the city of Joondalup's quite hilly and create some products that have a lot of upside. There's a couple of different markets from the buying perspective. And firstly, the downsizers in Warwick who have always loved to be in Warwick, who have Mm -hmm. been living in their home since they built it. They've got some money. The houses are worth a bit. Yeah, that's right. They're actually looking to stay right where they are. Mm. So um, the downsizers market is one part of it. And then you've got your young professionals and those looking to buy close to mum and dad for a a nicely finished uh, three by two villa. They can get that for, say, around $500,000 or... Go up to the two-story um, townhouse option, which might get a sale price for the developer of around sort of mid to or low to mid six hundred thousands. Yeah, and there's some real. Op- and what that shows to me is not only is it still affordable for that demographic of young person that's you know professional working in the city, coming straight off the train station and getting home close to the parents and where they would have their sports team or uh, you know where they used to go to school and whatnot. All their mates are there. It's it's a great price point to actually make some good money developing. I think so. I think there's a perfect storm of the median house price being probably at its lowest point that it's ever been since uh, the GFC. Mm. And that from there creates the opportunity to sell new product back in, but at quite a nice purchase price. Yeah. So these newly developed properties are going for a, a good amount of money. That's right. A lot of suburbs I've seen where that triplex has been around for a while, where there's a bit of supply and option, especially as a secondhand product now, those prices have dumped. There's really not a lot in it on a feasibility in, say, a Nolamara to go and do a triplex. However, in a suburb like a Warwick, where people haven't really kicked it off yet in terms of developing, there's really only a few developments out there that are showing those price points. There's not a lot of supply, therefore there's not a lot of competition for to sell that product. People are paying for it. 
Correct. The land value has held in Warwick. It's uh, it's a great spot. Uh, if you go to that area you spoke of, Nolamara, I, th- I think land prices have really come back a lot in the last uh, three years post the uh, mining construction boom. But yeah, with Warwick, it's, it's held well. People can see what it means to them to buy in that area for uh, convenience and ease of living. Now, so we've spoken about the opportunities, but there are a couple, especially specific to the city of Joondalup and the topography of the area, the policies of the city. There are a couple of risks that we need to just be aware of if we're going to be buying, let's say, a development block in Warwick. First off, the rule on two street frontages. It's specific to the city of Joondalup, really, uh, and it can catch a lot of people if they're looking to do a side-by-side. Yeah, that's right. Um, There is a a 20-metre frontage rule, which really does put a dampener on a few different ideas, but at the same time, I think, looking forward, it's uh, in keeping with uh, how they like the suburb to be maintained and streetscape that they're trying to achieve through there just to keep things looking good in Warwick. So not only does that mean that a side-by-side is probably not possible in a lot of the blocks that we're looking at in Warwick, it does mean also that the triplexes, all of those three houses, they're all facing that common property and therefore we have to take into consideration topography and turning circles and whatnot, which can make it a bit tighter, especially on those smaller blocks. Certainly, and I suppose every developer's firstly looking at the topography and, and what money may need to be spent on retaining. Which is a factor in the city of Joondalup, isn't it? With you know, yeah. Warwick, Padbury, Craigie, uh, these suburbs, they had, a, I guess, a vogue where they would have a lot of rocky-style retaining because it was, it was cool, you know? But now we're looking at going, geez, it's going to cost money to get rid of that. And not only that, all our neighbours are on different, different levels to us. It is a bit of a hill little spot uh, that sand dune belt that we have going through the the northern corridor there yeah and you can actually lose a bit of money in the backyard before selling back into the market so it's certainly probably your first consideration when you're putting an offer in on something that's developable but i think there's certainly good money to be made on on resale for anything that you build there with our feasibilities we're obviously factoring that in and there's still money to be made so that's a really good sign it just needs to be a consideration for people that are looking because a lot of people will look at it and underestimate just how much it would cost to get these blocks nice and square to build on uh, if they're going to sell the blocks or even obviously to build themselves yeah correct i mean there's obviously uh, some still some really level blocks some some really really good sites through there and we're working on bringing those to market there's there's others that may have a, a little a few um retaining issues but uh, it's all price relative and as long as you consider everything uh, before making your offer you can always go from there John, every time we get a suburb spotlight going, we talk about if we had uh, the average price of money to spend, what would you spend? So I'm going to put that question to you. If you had $540,000, dollars what would you spend that on in Warwick? So I would certainly consider the street, the location in, in the suburb and, and you know the quietness of the position on the street and then looking at the topography as well in in keeping with that as well as something that gives you the opportunity to build what you want to build so you might be looking more to do just your triplex one-story villas and there's lots of opportunity for that that's probably what i'd be looking at just a much loved family home that you may be able to just bulldoze and create three new lots on so checking our zoning making sure we're actually picking a place up in the right area and i find that sort of west of dorchester ave yeah dorchester avenue cuts the middle of the suburb north south 
now. So that Western pocket where the newer homes are, it's probably where the value of land in Warwick is slightly elevated compared to the other side mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a place there that's probably above 700 square meters. Probably mid 700s is something you're probably looking to chase to, so you can do more with what you're building, potentially fitting a second living area into the villas. Yeah, great. And that's going to add that extra bit of value times three. However, we focused a lot on development. The, I think the point you made about Warwick is it's not just going to be an investment suburb. There's always going to be a high level of that owner-occupied, good quality, large home, even two-story homes, uh, really adding that variety uh, of product in the area. There is a lot of nice big family homes there that will probably stay that way for a long time into the future. And one point here is to mention that not all of Warwick has been rezoned. It is a, quite a small suburb by Perth standards, but probably just over half has been rezoned. So there is a quite a large pocket of Warwick which will, will stay as it is as well. John, thanks for coming in today and thanks for sharing your suburb. No worries. Thanks for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!